welcome to Healthy Brain, Happy Body, a podcast from the Northeast Region Biofeedback Society. I'm your host, Dr. Saul Rosenthal. We're talking with some of the speakers coming to the 2022 NRBS conference, where the focus is stress, anxiety, and burnout. Today, our guide to the healthy brain and happy body is Dr. Stephen Porges, who is well known for the polyvagal theory. This describes the role that the vagus nerve has in our reaction to threats and in maintaining or toning down a state of vigilance and reactivity. Dr. Porges is active in research, teaching, and developing interventions to help people reduce overactive fear and stress responses. I first heard Dr. Porges back in 2007, where he discussed the polyvagal theory in the context of heart rate variability biofeedback, along with Richard Gewertz and Paul Lair. I think it's fair to say that polyvagal theory continues to influence biofeedback, as well as many other interventions that target the autonomic nervous system and reactivity. Dr. Porges and I talked about how neurological reactivity translates into experiences of safety and danger, and ways that we can train our nervous system to help maintain a better state of calm. First, our listeners are a mixture of professionals and the public who are all interested in integrating or the integration of physiology and psychosocial experience. Could you give us a brief description of the polyvagal theory, if brief as possible? Well, my least liked question. I'm okay. sure it is. Okay, just sim- simply stated, our physiological state acts as a mediating variable of our life's experiences, how we perceive the world, how we react to others, how we project our, ourselves to others. Uh, it's not all in our head. Our physiological state has a great influence on our behaviors and our thoughts. And polyvagal theory actually sketches out the map of how different physiological states function as literally neural platforms upon which different behaviors more are more likely to spontaneously emerge. In physiologic states, are you meaning autonomic? So um, stress I reaction? Would, I, I focus on autonomic, but the I, I would say the fallacy is to think that our nervous system has separate uh, boxes or components. Uh, we have one nervous system. We have, in a sense, specialties within that nervous system. Our visceral organs it, are regulated by the autonomic nervous system, but it serves as the platform upon which brain functions work. So I was actually reading a paper recently looking at the relationship between uh, vagal tone or a measure of heart rate variability and evoked potentials, in a sense, into the world of neural feedback. And there's a strong relationship. And of course, there should be because uh, our visceral organs are regulated by our brainstem and our brainstem is sending signals to the cortex and other areas of the brain. And the cortex and other areas of the brain send signals to the brainstem that affect our organs. So it's a bi-directional superhighway of neural connect- connectivity. So we can't think of, oh, that's below the neck. It's not important to me. Or that's cortex, that's thoughts, that's memories, that's my experience. They're all integrated. It's further refuting the the mind-body split that I think a lot of our health care comes um, from. Yeah, well, yeah, I started to go back and try to figure out where did this come from. We all use the term Cartesian dualism. And we see the pragmatics of it, that if, you know, spirit and mind are separate, well, we can kind of open bodies and learn about it. So we look at the pragmatics of it. But if we go back and actually understand what Descartes was trying to say, 
He was saying that passion, which we could translate as physiological state, confounds reason. That's polyvagal theory. Hmm. And saying our physiological state can interfere, but also our physiological state can optimize experiences or thoughts. So we have to think of what Descartes was talking about, especially in his writing on pure reason. He's talking about a very special, a physiological state in which passion is not intruding on our thoughts. And he's right. You know, our physiological feelings uh, set the platform for intrusive thoughts, and it also sets the platform for rational thought. So it was a very special case. And it, unfortunately, that special case became the, uh, let's say, the idealized view of what people should be. They should, in a sense, numb out their feelings or not respond to their feelings. And this has had a profound impact on our society and our health, because if we deconstruct numbing out and try to interpret what that means, it's saying we're turning off our feedback loops. We're not listening to our body. When you turn off feedback loops, you start disrupting how the nervous system is regulating those organs. You start getting symptoms in these various organs, and finally, you end up getting an organ disease. So that's a way in which trying to numb the physiologic piece yeah. actually comes back to haunt that physiology well, itself. Be, because our physiology evolved really brilliantly to be able to disrupt homeostatic functions for short periods of time and then to rapidly recover. But what we've done with the knowledge that we can be productive or do things while we disrupt it for short periods of time, we just decided as a culture to expand it. Expand, and we use terms like uh, I'm stressed out. What we really should be saying is my autonomic nervous system is disrupted. It's no longer in a physiological state that supports homeostatic functions. We shouldn't even use words like stress or anxiety. We should operationalize them and say, well, my physiology is not supporting my health growth and restoration. Mm-hmm. And in reality, there's nothing wrong with disrupting it. We do that when we mobilize, but we need time and space, safe time, safe experiences to allow that nervous system literally to recover. And we tend to think, well, if I can disrupt it and I got this thing produced, I create that product, I can go back and disrupt it some more. And then people start using medication, drugs, or addictive behaviors to keep their physiology in mobilized productive states. And at one point, the body literally screams at the individual and says, not doing that anymore, and now you have real problems. So I think that disruption is what we would call the the fight or flight or or fight flight. Sometimes, sometimes. Mm -hmm. uh, You see, that's another, in a sense, cultural, historical, uh, I would think, misdirection. Mm -hmm. So we think that the only disruptor we have, only stress reaction or threat reaction, is simply a sympathetic mobilization reaction. But once you take one step into the world of trauma, you realize that that's not the only defense that people get stuck into. And what we start understanding is that we go into polyvagal theory, which emphasizes our evolutionary heritage. We find out that we have also a very primitive, very ancient defense system that evolved before fight flight. And it's a shutdown system. Mm-hmm. And it may initially occur as passing out, basovagal syncope, it, and then it may uh, literally become nuanced in which if passing out is potentially 
uh, lethal and dangerous, meaning that you're not getting enough oxygenated blood, and you can fall, the nervous system is tries to optimize survival. So it says, I'll give you a little bit of sympathetic tone so you keep enough blood flow, enough muscle tone, so you don't pass out. And we call that freeze. So mm -hmm. in a sense, I think freeze is a, an adaptive sequence to the, uh, the severe of reaction of shutting down. And then what happens along that journey is people start to dissociate so they don't even go into the free state. So now there's a, in a sense, a higher level nuance modification of a defense system. So defenses are not solely fight flight is what I'm saying. Mm -hmm. They can be shut down, they can be freeze and they can be dissociative. And they literally are following this evolutionary map that all we, all we need to do is look at where we came from and we understand where we have, where we go when we're under challenge. And polyvagal theory basically acknowledges the pioneering work of John Hewley Jackson, a neurologist who talked about dissolution or evolution in reverse as a way that the nervous system reacts to both threat and literally illness. We, in a sense, de-evolve, become more primitive. We start using these more ancient circuits. That makes me kind of wonder, well, it makes me wonder a lot of things, but one of the things I'm curious about is how might that play out developmentally when we think about uh, development of even psychosocial, like attachment to important others, things like that. How might that play out? Well, I could reverse it because it's going to be obvious. Mm -hmm. <laughs> okay, the issue is if your body is not in a safe state, your body's in a state of defense or threat. That doesn't lend itself to sociality, doesn't mm -hmm. lend itself to attachment, doesn't allow itself to trusting relationships. So we have to understand that the actual, uh, let's say the coin of humanity is the ability to feel safe in the presence of another. And if you have abusive history, abusive childhood, the nervous system isn't stupid. It says you're in the dangerous world. In a dangerous world, you can't afford to be accessible. You can't afford to uh, basically think or feel that you are safe. You have to always be defensive. And always being defensive is really not allowing anyone close to you. I have learned so much from the world of trauma because people who have experienced trauma tell you their narrative. And the narrative is, look, I want to have a relationship. I want to be safe with another. I want to be comfortable in the arms of another, but my body will not allow me to do that. And that's why they're in therapy. So the body has learned how to be safe in a dangerous environment, but oh. even if that environment becomes safer, the body can't well, easily let let's, go of that? Well, let, let's change the wording. Okay. The, the nervous system has navigated in an environment in which the body reacts to as if it were dangerous. So in a sense, we, we navigate, we, we try to survive. And if a person car carries with them a trauma history, their nervous system is tuned or biased to detect threat when there may not be any threat. And in a sense to overreact, to be too sensitive to things. Mm -hmm. And you may see this in features like anxiety. I mean, think what anxiety is. Once you throw away the psychological construct and ask about the physiology, it's a body that's been retuned. It's an autonomic nervous system that's retuned to be in a state of a chronic threat. It's not a, you know, it may have psychological manifestations, 
But the core of it is the physiology. The physiology is saying my body needs to be mobilized. I and muscle tension, muscle tone. I got to keep moving because if I don't move, I'm more vulnerable. So you can actually see the evolutionary history of vertebrates in people who have these features. And of course, when they have those features, it's not really what they're, is that self-image or mental image of an idealized life. It's not that they don't want to be safe. It's that their body functionally doesn't give them permission to be safe. And this is in, in a way why people are in, into uh, biofeedback and neurofeedback, because in, in a way, uh, the body has a mind of its own, and it's not listening to the intentionality. <clears throat> and it, the intentionality now says to get control over these systems, we have to re, in a sense, reconnect or functionally reconnect the feedback loops in our body. And that's what neurofeedback and biofeedback, that's the premise. Mm-hmm. It's get those feedback systems functioning again. But in doing that, we have to acknowledge that under chronic threat, which we call stress or fear, our nervous system turns off its internal feedback loops to deal with external issues. Or let's say you got COVID and you got a pathogen. It turns off some of those feedback issues uh, to deal with pathogens. So there is this, in a sense, the intelligence or brilliance of the nervous system and to deal with threat both inside the body and outside the body is amazingly sophisticated and critical to our survival. The question is, when the danger leaves, when the illness is healed, many nervous systems are not spontaneously recovering. And that's when they end up in various forms of therapy, Mm -hmm. because the system gets retuned to be in a chronic state of threat. And the system needs experience of feeling different physiological states, specifically states of homeostatic function or states of safety. So obviously, Biofeedback and neurofeedback we think of as ways of retuning that nervous mm. system. I guess I'm also curious about other ways that polyvagal theory might be applied to psychotherapy and to other interventions and treatment for trauma and for anxiety. Mm. Well, what the theory does is it elevates the concept of sociality to the level of being a neuromodulator. What that means is that my interaction with you, even through internet, has an impact on your physiology. And if we get into more reciprocal dialogues, your physiology will just love it. If I start to criticize you, <laughs> your physiology will pull back. We as a species, this is our evolutionary heritage. We use sociality to regulate our physiology. And during the pandemic, we were deprived of a lot of that and our bodies have retuned. Uh, the issue now for many people is how do you get the system feeling safe enough to engage others? Because when we engage others, we support our own homeostatic functions. Absolutely the question. How do you use soci- uh, sociality to retune the physiology? Well, this is, uh, I think many of us are into that moment of basically when the rubber hits the road in a Mm -hmm. sense we have the models we have the theories but we're also human beings so we know that we need social nourishment but we also are now living in bodies that in many ways have been traumatized they see other people as threat the body does even though the image isn't that way the body reacts 
And the, the, in my own modeling is titration, you know, take a little, get used to it. Uh, in a sense, uh, biofeedback is a titration model. It's not a overwhelming concept where you just kind of, if something is good, more is better. It's saying allow that system to reorganize. And I think the re-engagement with other social mammals is a biofeedback model as well. You, how does it feel? Can I handle a little bit more? Or am I feeling like it's destabilizing? And part of what is part of biofeedback and neurofeedback is a development of an awareness of one's own bodily state. Well, I certainly know that with the students I work with and, and a lot of the adults as well, they're terrified to go back face to face. You know, I wonder even if this sort of pushback about the demands to come back into the office is is that titration playing out in 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 the world i i think so i and i think the the political hostility that we all are feeling is another one of the products because what we're seeing is the threshold to detect threat has been lowered as opposed to the threshold to be accessible to others we're under threat and what are, what are the uh, predictable outcomes moving into a threat physiology? We're seeing it in front of our eyes. And the issue is, yeah, we can understand it. Now, how can we reverse it and reverse it through our own, starting off with our own compassion for ourselves, which has to occur before we can have compassion for others. We have to understand that we've been challenged, meaning we have to listen to our bodies and we have to titrate our experiences before we can be helpful to others. I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about the con connection between compassion and tuning the physiology. Well, we have to, in a sense, be careful when we use our language because people, when we use words like empathy, compassion, people think they know what it means. Well, if you come out from, come from a laboratory science perspective, empathy is really, you're getting the same physiological response that the person who's being injured is getting. Now, if you're in a therapeutic setting and the person, your your client has been injured and they're starting to describe that, and you're cringing like that, how does the client feel when you're broadcasting back signals of pain? Basically, many people who have trauma histories don't want to talk about their traumas because it triggers, it's not that they don't want to talk about it, it's that when they talk about it, they get accused back of hurting people. So the question really is, what is compassion? Compassion is witnessing, it's being supportive without cringing. And I think we all, we as a species, we as a society are very poor at witnessing. We tend to evaluate rather than just be there. And even some of my good friends who use the word compassion or use the word empathy in their therapeutic strategies, even want retribution to those who have been who have injured and the person who's injured wants to be supported that's what they want they want to be heard then things move on beyond that i think we've missed clearly missed the boat when we start dealing with people who have been abused and traumatized when we start going after uh predators which is not that it's not important but the initial reaction is what's needed from my perspective is to support the survivor. How do you support survivors? You support them by being a co-regulator. You're supporting them 
by being a good witness, by listening, and not by interpreting and not by telling them, but by being there, giving them voice. So the support without evaluation provides them with the space they need to calibrate, to, to yeah. start to titrate yeah. in that direction. We can deconstruct that into a physiological model because as you, if you react to a person telling their story, you are broadcasting cues of threat right back at them or injury. If you use language that reframes their negative experiences, you're still triggering their negative experiences. If you are there as a supporting other, a therapeutic presence model, then you are able to support the person. It's kind of like when a baby is crying, you hold the baby. You don't yell at the baby for crying, although some people may do that. It has a negative impact. It's really interesting to, to, to think about the impact of the pandemic and on, on, on our sort of shared experience and how we're in a sort of shared traumatic place. What's the future of polyvagal theory? What are you working on now? And, and how has the pandemic, if at all, how is that impacting your thinking? Well, okay. So we created the Polyvagal Institute with one goal in mind, that is to uh, get the principles out there into different disciplines like education, like the judicial system. So what we're talking about, like with predator and uh, survivor, the judicial system still starts talking about people if they don't fight, they're literally giving permission. And it's a misunderstanding of how bodies react to threat. So in education, it, it has a lot of other things uh, in terms of how people are treated and the actual physiology that would facilitate learning and cognition. So in neurofeedback and biofeedback, when you deal with their there's a large influx of children who have learning problems that you deal with, and they tend to be more on the attention and impulsive behavioral level. They can't, but if you shift that and say, what is impulsivity? What is lack of attention? These are literally symptoms or features of a body in a state of threat. So we, we start always coming back to this organization of behavior and thought processes that sit on top of a physiological state. And so with the Polyvagal Institute, we're trying to reach out to these different disciplines, including uh, uh, medical practices and healthcare in terms of how do you create a clinic that is not just the evaluative, which is a trigger to our nervous system of threat, but is supportive and a good witness that creates shared journeys of healing. So that's important. I also have this totally, I would say, not necessarily uh, other side, but part of my roots and that, that of being a scientist. And I am working on new metrics. Uh, so within the area of heart rate variability, I uh, worked on this metric that I called vagal efficiency. And basically it, it, it's telling you how much does that vagal tone measure regulate your heart rate. It's in a sense saying, how efficient is this system? So if I shift posture, does my heart rate go up? Then does it immediately come back down? And it appears to be a powerful marker of dysautonomia. And the issue is it's telling you whether or not that nervous system is tightly coupled to the end organs reactivity, in this case, functionally heart rate. And I think it's going to have a, a lot of impact in taking some of the self-blame out of many people's behavioral problems. For example, there's a syndrome 
called Ehlers-Danlos, which is uh, the hypermobility subtype. It's a, uh, basically individuals who, who have double jointed, uh, but it's been noted by in the medical community because these people have lots of anxiety and many physicians just don't want to deal with them. Anxiety and pain, they don't want to deal with them because they don't have end organ damage. So you go in for a test and everything's fine, but they are in pain. They're basically, they're complaining. That's how the physicians see it. But when you measure their vagal efficiency, it's, uh, it's almost categorically different, meaning that there's a disconnection between the nervous system's regulation of the heart and how the heart rate itself goes. It's like the heart has a mind of its own. So when their physiology gets moving, if the neural system doesn't serve to contain it. And I use terms like vagal break. The vagal vagus is no longer an efficient vagal break. Hmm. It's it just gets decoupled. And I think that's the fertile ground for end organ damage. And uh, very so actually in the world of biofeedback, I'm curious whether autonomic bio RSA biofeedback would shift vagal efficiency. Would it would that be an endpoint? And I'm looking forward to doing that. And the other thing is I'm working on, hopefully, trying to find a metric within heart rate variability that is an indicator of inflammation. Because when you take polyvagal theory and actually think about it and understand it, it's really saying, when I feel safe, my body's in homeostatic states. It supports health growth and restoration. But when I feel threat, my body no longer supports that. And what is one of the other attributes? It's not just fight flight. Inflammation is part of that threat reaction system. So the issue is, you know, when our nervous system gets locked into threat, we become, we have inflammation problems and we have autoimmune issues. But can I get a index, a dynamic measure of inflammation? And that's where I am today. Is there any one thing that we should take away from this talk? The simple thing is that uh, everyone is different. You know, we walk around with that as if that's our knee-jerk reaction. But everyone's different. But we have similar neurophysiological structures. And when we shift into different physiological states, the script or the pattern of behavior that spontaneously emerges from those states is very similar. It's similar among us. It's also similar with other social mammals. If we have dogs, we can see it in our dogs. They can become destabilized and then they become hypersensitive to everything going around them. We as humans tend to think that everything in our life that we do, I should say everything that other people do is based on intentionality. But when it comes to us, we're literally more permissive and we say, well, I just didn't feel good that day. But we reflect on others with a degree of evaluation that intentionality drives our behavior. Polyvagal theory says intentionality does, but you know, when there's a, is a, a debate in our nervous system between basic biological feelings of survival and life threat versus intentionality, which one will win? Our biology. And you can see this in tantrums. You can see this in arguments where the body gets triggered into a state of threat and then conscious, intentional dialogue of rational thought is no longer available. I think the journey for many of those who have been 
let's say, instates of threat or anxious or have trauma histories, and we're a traumatized species, the journey of healing is, I call it a re-embodiment. And that happens to be very close to your profession. It's about nervous system regaining control of the organs that uh, under threat, have the nervous system has been told to vacate that control. You've been listening to Healthy Brain, Happy Body, a production of the Northeast Region Biofeedback Society. Go to nrbs.org to find out more about the organization, including our trainings, monthly webinars, and yearly conference. I'm your host, Dr. Saul Rosenthal, and our guide today to the healthy brain and happy body was Dr. Stephen Porges, a distinguished basic and applied researcher whose polyvagal theory continues to influence our understanding of stress and how to manage it. In addition to his research and teaching, he has developed a non-invasive vagal stimulator called the Safe and Sound Protocol. You can learn more about it and Dr. Porges at www.stephenporges.com. You can also learn more about polyvagal theory at the NRBS annual conference. Remember, you can join us with a 25% discount on October 21st and 22nd by registering with the code HAPPYLISTENER at nrbs.org. Subscribe to this podcast by clicking the subscribe here link in the show notes or wherever you get your podcasts. We really want to hear from you. Be part of this ongoing conversation by contacting us with your thoughts, ideas, and questions at healthybrain at nrbs.org. Leave us reviews as well. It really helps podcasts like this one reach more listeners. Healthy Brain, Happy Body is produced and edited by me. The theme music is Catch It by Coma Media. Be sure to join us on our next episode as we continue to explore the keys to our well-being on Healthy Brain, Happy Body. Happy Body.